Hello and welcome to episode number 12 of that 60s recording podcast. Uh, my name is Joe Montague and I am your host. Um, I can't believe it's been nearly uh, next episode. It will be six months since I started this podcast. That's crazy. Um, and I just want to say a very quick welcome to all of the new listeners um, we've got over the last month or so. It seems to have been a bit of a spike in listeners over the last month, which I'm really, really uh, grateful for. Um, so please keep spreading the word and uh, and telling people about this. Um, it's crossed my mind that <laughs> I don't know why I'm telling you this. I might get some mugs made because I think that the artwork that David Henshaw made for me, I think it's really cool and I'd quite like a mug with it. Um, and uh, it'd be fun to uh, to make some mugs up and uh, and just help spread the word because I'm uh, I'm just trying to document um, document thoughts about sixties recording and and that kind of stuff. So yeah, I think it would be quite nice to 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 do that. So maybe I'll do those. Um, I didn't plan on talking about that, but that's something I've thought about this week. And I have verbal diarrhea, so it's come out. Um, there we go. So uh, yeah, thank you for if you're a new listener, um, and thank you as well if you are a um, long time listener. Um, I really appreciate the support. Um, and while we're on that subject, if any anybody has any uh, ideas for guests that they want me to speak to, obviously I have a, a short list of people that um, I want to get in touch with, a mixture of people who are actual, you know, actually involved in 60s recording. Um, I mean, uh, somewhat morbidly, um, there's uh, becoming fewer and fewer of those um, as we go on. Um, but I am also uh, want... I have a, a list of people as well that are sort of linked with um, either sort of production that are 60s recording related um, or have a mentali- that mentality um, and some sort of instrumental uh, people, I suppose. I'll just grab my microphone. Um, you know, people who are involved in uh, some of the gear, that kind of side of things, um, as I quite like talking to those as well. But if you have any ideas of, uh, of episodes that you think might be interesting... Um, then do feel free to get in touch with me. Uh, it's joe at allyouneedisdrums.com um, or I am on Instagram at allyouneedisdrums. Um, that's a good place to find out about uh, upcoming podcast episodes. Uh, I do a little um, blog on there. I mean, if I'm completely honest, it's just lots of videos of me playing drums. <laughs> that's uh, that's essentially it. But if that's your kind of thing and you like, uh, you want to hear about some of the stuff that I do, then go and get me on Instagram at allyouneedisdrums. Um, right, so on with today's podcast. Um, today I am talking to a fabulous guitarist and uh, a absolute knowledge on uh, all things vintage guitars who goes by the name of Ed Olesko. Um, he is a really, really fantastic chap and we talked for absolutely ages, um, even longer than, <laughs> than the episode is, um, just got on like a house on fire and he's really, really fantastic. Um, he's on Instagram. Um, I've tagged him in the post that you'll hear, you'll see for this. Um, so do go and check him out, and I'll uh, I'll plug him at the end of the show. And he's got quite an exciting business venture upcoming. So you'll hear me explaining the sort of premise of what we're doing. Um, basically, this uh, these next two episodes, and actually, as it happens, the following two episodes are going to be two parters. And it's because it just so happens that these conversations are, are really long. Um, I know from experience of listening to podcasts, I kind of get a bit lost in them. Maybe my attention span's not big enough, but I kind of get lost in them if they're post an hour. Um, and I never really—I always kind of intended these to be around an hour long. So I've broken this up into two forty-five-minute uh, actual bits of discussion. And with my preamble and postamble, they'll be about an hour long. Um, and I think it's a bit more digestible like that. Um, so essentially what we're going to do, and, and again, you'll hear us explain in a, in a bit more detail, is use the uh, timeline of Beatles guitars to uh, give a little bit of history about guitars through um, from the late 50s into kind of the early 70s. Um, and we touch on amplifiers um, and that kind of stuff and a little bit of recording. Um, so, yeah, um, I really hope you enjoy it. It's uh, something a little bit alien to me because I, as much as I love guitars and I do play guitar, I don't know a huge amount about them. Um, and I'm almost now going to apologise for how much I apologise during this. Um, you know, at the beginning, I, I sort of, uh, I sell myself short. I know a bit more about guitars than I uh, perhaps let on, but it's uh, still um, important for me to recognise that Ed knows lots more about them than I do. <laughs> anyway, I will 
stop rabbiting now and get on with the podcast. So enjoy this. And here he is, Ed Olesko. So uh, really happy today to be joined by Ed Olesko, who uh, is a guitarist and a, a guitar journalist. Um, and uh, I'll, I'll let you in a second to introduce yourself and tell a little bit more detail about, about what you do. And um, Ed, would you mind just telling everybody a little bit about um, your background and how you got into sort of vintage guitar things? Yeah, of course. Um, hi, Joe. Hi, everybody. Um, if you find that guitar expert, let me know because uh, <laughs> there's not one in the, no one in this studio. But no, I'm as Joe said. I I I write for uh, Guitar Magazine and I write for Guitar.com. Um, I'm also a guitarist, session player, um, budding producer, and all the other hats that we all seem to wear nowadays. <laughs> yeah. um, trying to make anything in this world of music, teaching, and so on. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm massively, I guess, into all sorts of guitars and amps and pedals and so on. But vintage guitars have really become my sort of area of speciality over the last probably 10 years or so. Um, managing to build up a, a semi sort of decent collection of vintage yeah, fend Fenders, Gibsons, all that sort of stuff. Um, and yeah, we, we decided to chat today, didn't we, about um, the context of the Beatles sort of guitars. Yes. Um, and their effect on... Uh, 60s recording and popular music that follow afterwards hopefully yeah <laughs> if we can do it yeah I, I hope we can and um i think it made it slightly easier for me um because I, I i certainly wouldn't even call myself um particularly knowledgeable about beatles guitars but at least i've seen them and there have been a lot of pictures and stuff i've seen so i it helps me with the context if we use so our plan is to to use the timeline of Beatles guitars as a a framework for talking about guitar tones and amps and things in general and I am more than happy to admit that I am not an expert in this at all so I'm gonna I do play guitar and I'm hopefully going to ask some questions that are um slightly sensible <laughs> and um, I'm sure you will yeah and I, I uh, I'm almost sort of apologizing for my ignorance at the beginning but um yeah so there you go you have some context about what we're gonna do um, and I'm sure it might even come to this, that there'll be a ton of questions after this um, that you guys all might have. So it might even be that this isn't the only time we do this, um, which would be nice. So we'll see. We'll see how we get on. We've got a mammoth task ahead of us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm happy to, to pop back at any point and um, hopefully, you know, interact and get some questions answered and stuff. Cool. Um, I guess then if we if we kick off. Um, we go back to the sort of late 1940s, early 50s, and there was no such thing as teenagers or popular music as <laughs> such, was there? Um, you know, instruments-wise, um, you're talking of the classical instruments. You know, guitars were acoustic. Um, you know, they were, you know, linked and descended to all the string instrument family, weren't they? Violins, cellos, and then, you know, all the guitars, all that sort of stuff. And then, I guess, early sort of 50s, along came the the start of electrifying guitars so sort of pickups got shoved on acoustic guitars and people wanted them to be bigger um, and louder sounds i guess and what came with that was the moving of a guitar very quickly and simply from being a rhythm instrument so the strum along chuggy chords perhaps in the back of a um glenn miller record you know where it's a, it's a rhythmic thing and it's almost part of the drums it's almost up there with the cymbals that sort of you know yes. strummy guitar sound um, to being, you know, a lead instrument along, you know, competing with the saxophones and trumpets and all that for the lead lines in music. Um, where that brings in with the Beatles is that around that sort of mid-50s time when John, Paul, George, you know, and Ringo were, were growing up, uh, we had skiffle music, or they had skiffle music, which was still, from a guitar point of view, largely acoustic Um there was the introduction of some electric guitars uh, gradually as pretty much these old-fashioned acoustic guitars sometimes had homemade bits of telephone stuck on them <laughs> or, you know, running them through a sort of a record player or a gramophone or something to try and get a bit louder. Um, but the music itself was, was low volume and acoustic. Um, Could I just ask a quick question? So when... Of course. I've got a, a couple of things I want to touch on from that. So when, when was the first... Or whenabouts was guitar amplification started? I mean, presumably, you're talking about jazz bands like the Glenn Miller Band and things. They were they must have 
either not been micing it up at all or just putting a mic in front of it. And when did it? When did a pickup first appear on the scene? Around about, um, there's a few different stories, but we're talking sort of late 40s, Gibson had a pickup, um, a P P13 pickup, and a Charlie Christian pickup named after the guitarist Charlie Christian. And these, and then very soon they sort of turned into the P90, which was a very famous pickup. Um, and that would be sort of around about the late, very late 40s, sort of 49, 50. Leo Fender first brought out his... Uh, what became the Telecaster. It was called a Broadcaster, first of all, until Gretsch Drums, who had a, a drum kit called the Broadcaster Drums, actually got in touch with him and said, you can't use Broadcaster. <laughs> it's already used. That's so, interesting. Yeah. So it's Drums' fault. It's ah. all Drums' fault that we have the Telecaster. Yeah, I mean, obviously so, I know about, I know um, what, bro like, the Broadcaster's still an amazing drum kit now. And I, uh, yeah, yeah, I had no idea there was a link there. That's really cool. That's exactly it. And one of the Fender employees, I think, again, around the same sort of time, popular culture was changing. Televisions were becoming a big thing. So th one of the, I think one of the salesmen, Don Randall, or one of these guys sort of said, um, oh, how about we call it the Telecaster, mm. you know? And hence sort of 1951-ish, um, the Telecaster was born. So that's that's sort of Fender's big, uh, big impact into the market. That was one of the first solid body electric guitars so they okay. were designed to be electric now hand in hand with that you had to have an amplifier um and uh, they almost developed as well from slightly before that sort of 50s and there was a, a craze for slide lap steel slide and hawaiian music okay. so some of the first fender instruments were actually sort of lap steel slides you played with a bar on your lap and they had pickups and an amplifier so, um, and and uh, and again, very briefly, the the Fender company, Fender was um, working with another guy called Doc Kaufman, and there's Fender and Kaufman who started off fixing gramophones and radios, and then they decided to build a few little amplifiers. So the very first Fender ampli amplifiers are K and F, which is Kau uh, Kaufman and Fender. And then that very soon just became Leo Fender himself with a Fender company. So hand in hand, we'll take a talk in 1951, 52-ish. You've got the first sort of Fender amplifiers and electric guitars. Had a big impact on the Gibson company, um, who needed to do, do a similar thing to compete. Um, historically, they'd always done sort of acoustic and jazz, jazz guitars. And as all these things, nothing happens in a vacuum. And it wasn't just one company that did this or one company that did that. You know, everyone is chipping away at the same sort of ideas, same yeah. time. You know, I mean, arguably Rickenbacker made a very early electric guitar as well, sort of known as the frying pan, um, <laughs> late 40s, um, which was a, almost looked like a banjo, but with an electric pickup in it. Very strange, sort of little metal bodied thing. <laughs> um, Les Paul, who... May, many, many of you may know as an artist himself, but he also found fame as being sort of Gibson's famous endorsee. And there's younger players today who perhaps only know Les Paul as a type of guitar, like yeah. a Stratocaster, a Les Paul, and not knowing that he was an actual artist. You know, <laughs> so whereas you have the Ed Sheeran guitar these days, back in the fifties you had the Les Paul. Um, uh, yeah, that's that's sort of jumping ahead, but I guess all these things are relevant when it comes to the Beatles because. As we'll talk about, Beatles had Rickenbacker guitars. Um, Beatles, yes. uh, at, towards the end, had a Gibson Les Paul George used. Um, they certainly had a lot of Fenders as well. So, um, so yeah, going back into the history of it, as teenagers growing up, um, John, sort of Paul and George, Ringo, they, they had skiffle music naturally around them. And in the States, uh, in the USA... Um, obviously, the earliest sort of rock and roll and blues music was being recorded and used, you know, Muddy Waters, Howling Wolf, um, then leading on to people like Chuck Berry, Bo Diddley and so on. As the instruments developed, so, you you know, had the Telecaster, Broadcaster um, first in the very early 50s. Then in 1954, Fender brought out a new model, the sort of revolutionary three pickup Stratocaster. Um Amplifiers were developing all the time through the 50s, all the tweed fenders, and they got louder and louder, more powerful. Um, you know, in, in sort of 54, 55, when the Fender Stratocaster came out, probably the most powerful amp you could get was about a 20-watt amp, um, which which is loud. You know, it's, it's a compete with a drum set, but isn't mega loud, what we're used to today, you know. Yeah. Um, 
But you zoom forward five years to about 1960, and by that point, because um, musicians were coming back to, to Fender and Ann Gibson and other companies saying, we need more volume, by that point you already then had things like the 80-watt Fender Tweed Twin, um, which are brutally loud. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's just crazy. And and a development sort of scale or, or path through through the 50s and then into the 60s, Fender amps, if we look at Fender amps, they went from sort of tweed amps, which were that very early rock and roll sound, quite crunchy, beautiful sounding things. I'm a huge fan. Um, through early 60s then to the brown and blackface amps where Leo Fender was trying to get louder, cleaner, clearer amps. Um, he didn't really grasp this concept of rock and roll being distorted amps and <laughs> crunchy stuff. He wanted cl clearer, louder, because people were asking for more and more. And if you think where kind of surf music in the mid-50s, uh, mid-60s got to, that Dick Dale twangy stuff, that's the pinnacle where Fender was going. Um, artists had a different viewpoint, but he was trying to get cleaner. Um, which then, yeah, ended up in the late late sort of sixties uh, with these huge colossal hundred and twenty watt and so on quad twins and all this sort of <laughs> stuff. Um, bringing that back to the to the Beatles, I guess we're looking at early sort of sixty nineteen sixty sixty one ish. They were really starting to get together as a band, um, skiffle music and playing their rock and roll influences, and they had a hodgepodge of different instruments, mainly sort of. Um, German import instruments, Hofner Club 40s. George had a sort of a Strat copy, a Futurama guitar from mm -hmm. Czechoslovakia. Um, reason I m mention the origins, the countries from where these things came, um, is because at the time following the Second World War and trying to improve the economy of Britain, um, there was a trade embargo. So the Beatles physically couldn't get hold of American brands like Fenders and Gibsons very easily or not at all. Um, there's a big story, I think it's round about 62, 63-ish. The first Fender Strat made it to the UK <laughs> <laughs> and I, I was soon snapped up by one of the leading players at the time, um, <coughs> Hank, Marv Hank Marvin, who played with Cliff Richard <laughs> and the Shadows, obviously. Um, wow. So it could have all been very different. But... Um, yeah, so Trade Embargo, they had these sort of um, German acoustics, uh, Hofner Club 40s, which were basically acoustics with a pickup. Um, why that's important is it because you get a very acoustic, clangy sound, still very much based on the skiffle stuff, even though they were playing more rock and roll, and you had a drum set and Pete Best and stuff playing drums, and an electric bass. Um, and we shouldn't dismiss the impact of electric bass and amplification. I mean, before... Um, Leo Fender invented pretty much electric bass in 52-ish I think the first um, electric P bass, Fender bass sort of came out um, and an amplifier to go with it. The only bass in, in a band was an upright swing jazz big bass yes. um, which again has volume limitations you know so all those el early, early Elvis and rock and roll songs which featured an upright bass um, again it's more of a rhythmic thing you know, you're only going to get that certain level. And you could try and mic it up, but they didn't have very good PAs and amps and stuff. And um. Well, you, you hear, a, you see a lot of pictures and and, uh, and read a lot about sort of the late 50s skiffly thing of, you know, T-chest basses. And mm. um, these are the things, I mean, as a, as a, as a sort of a non-first instrument guitarist, these are things I never really, really even thought about. I find the fact that the, it came from... Uh, almost late 40s where a, a, an electric guitar didn't even exist and then sort of 10 to 15 years suddenly it's the the instrument that's dominating everything and and it's how how fast it must have it just grew so quickly um and then again with the trade embargo it didn't even cross my mind that i have a timeline of the instruments here in front of me and there is you know even the drum kits, you know, they're using a Premier kit, which is UK based, and yeah, um, yep. Paul using a Hofner bass, which obviously still uses now. And Hofner, you said it is American, uh, German, if I'm if that's right, yeah, yeah, totally, yeah. And yeah. it's all defined, you know, everything that they've done is defined by what they could get close to home, and that's yeah. not really a concept that we're familiar with, you know, now because we can get anything we want whenever we want, completely. And also, I guess, as, as um, 
as sort of ch children of their time, if you like, and that mentality of making do. You know, you mentioned tea chest bases and stuff, and, and it was certainly that thing of the Beatles. It was a, almost a DIY element. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Paul's bass amps through the early years were sort of hobble-cobbled together with cabs they made themselves or somebody made for them and you know an amp would blow up and they'd have to try something else or they were they were switching guitars and swapping things around you know i mean paul only got the bass gig after Stu sutcliffe sort of left because john and george pretty much were first in dibs to go <laughs> i'm not doing it <laughs> you know um and paul had to sort of go and trade in his little acoustic guitar or little hoffner sort of thing to to get a bass because it was kind of nominated well you're the bass player <laughs> yeah, you know, and, and presumably but, the the Hofner bass he got was was probably what caught his eye in the shop, as opposed yeah. to you know he didn't he he probably didn't actively seek out a particular sound, um, yeah. and it it's just, what's available and and also there's a really interesting thing um, theory of mine which may be a bit nuts but I, I'm <laughs> sure I've read it in other places as well that Paul is very pragmatic and even if you look today he still tours with the same guitars pretty much you know and and he could have had any instrument nowadays but he still sticks pretty rigidly to his favorite things that he's had all those years and a lot of his instruments are symmetrically shaped like the violin bass because if you think about it he's um, left-handed so he plays left-handed so although he got a left-handed model of a bass some of his later guitars like his electric guitar the casino epiphone casino and stuff he had to switch the strings over from right to left hand but the body of the, the, the guitar was was symmetrical. So I think he didn't feel too alien being switching it over the other way. Ah, um, and I think that's a big a big appeal of his violin bass to him was that it was symmetrical and he could, you know, switch it around and stuff. Um, How interesting. Yeah, I again, never considered that. That's... Um, I mean, I think that sounds entirely plausible, not not even a theory. I think that sounds about right. <laughs> but again, again, it was what's available. You know, they yeah. were in Germany at the time playing in Hamburg. Go to the local music shop. Hofner would be available. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. Uh, and that's that's what he had and chose. But what I find amazing is as they then developed and became, you know, the world's biggest act of all time. Paul and his bass, a great example. He played that Hofner right through the Beatles. I mean, there was a period in, you know, roundabout sort of um, Sergeant Pepper's White Album time when he played a Rickenbacker bass that they gave him. Um, yeah. A couple of Fender basses ended up at Abbey Road when Fender finally sort of got an in with the Beatles and managed to ship them a bunch of gear. But you go towards the very latest stuff they did, the the Let It Be sessions and Abbey Road and stuff, and it's Paul playing his Hofner again. You know, he, he did have a couple of models eventually because one got stolen and so on. But it's it's that same instrument and he could have had any bass and any instrument in the world. Um, but that loyalty to those things was a pragmatic side of the Beatles, I think. And you see that in John and Paul as well, and George as well with lots of their instruments, you know. And Ringo with his drum set. Oh, precisely. <laughs> yeah, it was exactly near, pretty much identical all the way through, just ever so slightly bigger. Mm. And then obviously changes again towards the later years when he, he swaps to the uh um to the sort of natural uh ludwig but it's still a ludwig and it's still essentially a very similar thing yeah, yeah. You, you're completely right i mean you can see him today still playing with similar sorts of stuff it's um, it's, am it's amazing and the fact that those same instruments were pretty much just carried on and off of planes chucked on all and off by mal evans they're one roadie they toured the world with one roadie who who just carried the amps and the drums and there's a few great pictures in things like the, you know, the beatles book andy barbiak's barbic barbiak's book um if i'm not pronouncing it right i'm not sure the beatles gear book andy barbiak yes. um which is a phenomenally good read if anyone's into this stuff um and he details i mean everything is brilliant but yeah there's pictures in there they'll be at the the airport waiting to go on the plane and they're just guitars and random drums and amps you know not even in proper flight cases just <laughs> you know amazing you know um you think how much gear it takes for a band to tour if we're ever allowed to tour ever again mind with <laughs> um but you know i mean f my local band if we're playing a wedding or something we're probably taking more gear than the beatles toured america with you know it's it's crazy. Um. I um I got uh I mean re recent memories now of uh like taking flights with my band and having you know the the Beatles show I do and 
Um, you know, my drum kits are mm. always supplied when we go abroad or when, you know, I've just got my one kit and then there's just reams and reams of guitars come off the van. There's like 25 guitars <laughs> to, to get it all. And they're all just minor yeah. tweaks of the same sort of thing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Anyway, yeah. We'll, we'll get onto that, I'm sure. <laughs> um, um, so if we start with uh, talking sort of relative about like, I'm looking at my gear list here. So we've got John starting with a, a Rickenbacker um and if we could we could you talk about the different sounds and maybe um what influence it what about the specific guitars that influence those sounds so um yeah I mean to me a Rickenbacker is a um this is to, to steal a phrase that you've used already before before we started recording it's a bit plinky plonky and their <laughs> technical term <laughs> yeah i know them quite i know them from talking to sort of friends in beatles world that they're very expensive but they're only really good for one one sound and that is the sort of early early beatles uh sort of rock and rolly sound yeah completely true um yeah john got his 58 first rickenbacker 325 model um which was the sort of natural wood colored one in hamburg and I imagine one of the big appeals, almost as a slight contrary to what we said earlier about the trade embargo, was that this was a second-hand guitar that someone had obviously traded in at this music shop. And from what I've read and sort of seen and can imagine as well, I think the big appeal was it was an American guitar. Now, confusing because the Rickenbacker name actually sounds like it would be a German name. Um, I think the Rickenbacker company did actually have German roots and you know moved over to the States and stuff. So there's a bit of a, a, a transatlantic twist to that story. But yeah, it was a, the appeal of an American guitar. And at that point, the Beatles were massively influenced by American records. And they, any, any records they could get from the States were the holy grail. So I think John, as the leader, was the one who got the American guitar. Um, some interesting facts about that guitar is it's really short scale. So for any of us used to playing sort of more normal guitars nowadays, should we say, if you try and pick one of these up to play, they're really cramped. Um, it's, <laughs> I guess in drum world, it would be the equivalent of those playing on the little toy drum kits that you get for Christmas, <laughs> you know, yeah. where you can't really do much beyond play a basic four because you're, you're, <laughs> you're cramped like this. And it's, it's that's that sort of thing. But I mean, it's also typified looking through guitar history and popular music history. Pretty much only John Lennon used that guitar model because anyone else who's tried to pick one up and play one can't really do anything on it. And I think it's to the genius of John and his pragmatism, perhaps, that he got so much out of that guitar and was so loyal to it. Mm. Um, he later had it refinished when Brian Epstein came on board in about was it 62, 63-ish. When, when they smartened up their act and they had suits and he wanted them to have matching black guitars and so on. That guitar got painted black, um, had a few other changes to it. Um, he later got given a black replacement of the exact model from Rickenbacker when they were in the States, um, one of their second visits, Ed Sullivan's show and all that. But yeah, ultimately he played his Rickenbacker. Now, sonically, they're very bright guitars made of maple, short scale. The pickups are very twangy sounding. So you've got that great rhythm. If you think of the early albums, Please Please Me and that sort of stuff, twangy rhythm sort of sound, not much balls, not much sustain, um, not great for any lead sort of playing. There's a few sections where John plays little notes and you've got these very short staccato, little twangy, twangy sort of notes and riffs and that's it. Um, so that was a big part of it. George got around about the same sort of time um, a, about 61 this was that George got a Gretsch duo jet which was a black Gretsch guitar um, again he, him being a big fan of uh, Chet Atkins and some of that rock, more rockabilly country western type music I think that would be the appeal of the Gretsch and again because it was an American guitar and apparently the story goes that George got it from some sailor who'd brought it back merchant sailor brought it back from the States um, and it was it was something like I can't even remember the currency, but um, you know I may be misquoting, but I imagine it was ninety guineas <laughs> or whatever it was. Appa apparently, he paid the guy seventy five guineas there and then from his earnings that he'd saved from all these gigs in Hamburg, um, and an IOU of fifteen or twenty guineas or whatever shillings, or um, which is still to this day unpaid. Apparently, 
<laughs> so the guy, the guy, I don't think ever must have realised that George Harrison became George Harrison because he probably would have chased him up for the <laughs> the rest <laughs> of the of, of the deal. So who knows whatever happened to the merchant seaman that that brought that guitar over? But yeah, again, similar to John's guitar, with the type of pickups it had at the time, um, single coil Dynasonic pickups, very bright. Um, the guitar itself, although it looks a bit more like a Les Paul sort of shape, was actually semi-hollow. Um, and in typical Gretsch fashion, they, they used all these sort of drum coverings over the fronts of the guitars. So I think it may have been painted black, but certainly the, the more sparkly and sort of fancy Gretsch guitars just had drum wrap. That's what they used to, um, okay. to cover them and stuff. But again, not hugely sustainy, not very resonant. So again, led itself to that plinky-plonky stuff. If you think of... Perhaps the lead break in. I saw her standing there, um, and that those sort of early stuff. It's a very twangy sort of short staccato sound, isn't it? You know. Um, yeah. And then the biggest and perhaps sort of un, un, unsung hero in the Beatles catalogue, which they did get hold of early on and lasted pretty much completely through the whole career, were the again when they got sort of signed with Brian Epstein and got a bit of money and stuff. The uh, acoustic electric Gibson J160Es. So those big sunburst acoustics, you see John playing his up here, yeah. almost under his chin, yeah. um, and George a bit lower. And, and they were acoustic guitars, um, but with a, an electric pickup. Mm. Um, and going down the geeky rabbit hole actually had a few um, personality traits of them to make them better electroacoustic guitars. Um, they actually, de Gibson deliberately made them with a laminate top rather than a solid top, okay. which is interesting because a solid top acoustic is a big, resonant, lovely acoustic sound. Um, laminate, not so much. Ironically, when you're on stage or you want to plug into an amp, all that resonance from an, an all, all solid top actually makes more feedback and yeah. is harder to control and is a nightmare. So they deliberately made them laminate tops to be stiffer and... To hopefully not feedback so much. Um, Interesting. And they had the electric pickup in, and the Beatles used to use them mic'd up as acoustic sort of sounds, but also into the amps. Um, and for such a long time, even including their massive world tours when they were huge Beatlemania phase, you know, 64, 65, 66 sort of time. Often, I mean, John Lennon, for example, at that point, his J160E acoustic with one little sort of P90 pickup in the neck, that was his backup guitar. <laughs> so if his Rickenbacker or even Epiphone Casino at a later date broke a string on stage, he'd finish the set just on this electroacoustic. You know, <laughs> didn't even have didn't even have an ideal replacement. It was just you know those were the guitars they used. Um, again, they were a massive part then of that early Beatles sound. You know, lots of acoustic and even plugged in the amp. It's quite an, a a rhythmic, acousticy, strummy sort of sound, isn't it? You know. Yeah. How how did these guitars compare with what um what other people were using around that time so i guess if you could generalize you might say that now seeing somebody holding a, a strat or a telly or um whatever is a common sight what was the what were the sort of the common guitars being used by other people because presumably these the rickenbacker and, and maybe even the gretsch were quite uncommon for their time Definitely. I think they were sort of held in quite high esteem in, in Liverpool when they would come back from Hamburg as, you know, an increasingly successful big artists to have these, you know, these American guitars. You know, they were sort of a cut above the the other guys would have sort of homemade almost guitars in terms of, you know, some British brands knock together stuff. Like, say, the German things like the Hofners were quite popular. Um you had sort of Selma and things like that in the UK making little amps and guitars. Um, but yeah, they, they were huge, huge, hugely influential in their gear choices. And as the early 60s and the signing and beat music then became this big popular thing. I mean, the, the early Stones stuff, for example, Rolling Stones used very similar guitars. So they could get hold of like the Beatles. Um, then they went into other stuff. Other bands who were very much influenced by the Beatles, people were buying those type of guitars by the bucket load. You know, as soon as the Beatles made it big, 
you know, Gretsch guitars couldn't make enough guitars the same as George Harrison had. <laughs> Rickenbacker <laughs> couldn't make enough, you know, the, uh, the same as John's. Um, and it's the same with the drums, wasn't it? You know, Ludwig, yes, as soon was, as yeah. Gibson, Gibson uh, as soon as the Beatles came big, Ludwig couldn't make, they sort of had to open extra factories, didn't they, and make them 24-7, you know. <laughs> um, and so they were influential on other things. And the sound. So again, I think a huge part of it is the amplification. So they had, in Hamburg, the Beatles had, again, what amps they could get secondhand, some Selma things. Um, George then got a Gibson amp. Paul, um, John got a little Fender Vibrolux tweed amp, sort of 15-watt-ish sort of amp. Um, and that's what they would have used in the Hamburg days. Then when they got back to the UK, they managed through their manager, Brian Epstein, to get a deal with Vox. Um, and the classic Beatles backline is those sort of black Vox amps, isn't it? AC30s. Yeah. That's the real Beatlemania big thing. And and Brian Epstein, at the time, got them a great deal, which was basically, give us some free amps for the boys, um, give us some technical support, you know, and every sort of six months or a year, uh, you know, these amps will be bashed around and road-worn and scrapes from being chucked in the back of the van, so give us some brand-new, fresh ones. Um, and you can use the Beatles as advertising for no cost. Wow. <laughs> so... At the time, he secured a great deal for the band because they got this shiny new amplification. Fantastic, brilliant. But then you think how Vox have done it ever since. <laughs> <laughs> and, and they've never had to pay for an image right of the Beatles playing their gear or, you know, the countless acts and artists, uh, me included, who have bought a Vox AC30 because it's the Beatles amp. <laughs> Shrewd move. Yeah. Um, and companies did this. I mean, another story was that when the Beatles first went to the States, um, a few companies tried to get in touch with them. You know, Fender and that sort of weren't allowed in. <laughs> um, but um, Rickenbacker managed to get a, 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 like I say, a replacement for John, a brand new guitar for John, another one of his, 325 um, models. But they also gave George a 12-string. Ah. So if we move on through the timeline, so the Beatles by this point playing their Gretsch and... Um, George's Rickenbacker into the Vox amps. Um, they started off, Vo John had a Vox AC15 twin and then very quickly had the Vox AC30, as did George. Paul then got a Vox AC30 for his bass and then a Vox AC50 for the bass. And they just got bigger and bigger and louder and louder as they went through the 60s and Beatlemania progressed. Um, but yeah, Rickenbacker got in there and gave George this guitar. And George was actually ill in bed. It was for the Ed Sullivan show in 64-ish. And he was ill in bed and didn't make the meeting. But John had a strum of it and thought, oh, that's quite interesting, give it to George. And George really was taken by this 12-string Rickenbacker 360 um, and used it then on sort of mid, um, sort of early middle period Beatles albums, I guess. So we look sort of the Hard Day's Night is the classic one where you really hear it, that chord at the start, then those chiming arpeggios. Um, and, of course, it became massively visually seen around the world in the Hard Day's Night movie. Yes. Um, and going into our, I guess, the context that we're trying to talk through a lineage of the development of sounds in popular music. Well, the Beatles' use of that Rickenbacker 12-string on Hard Day's Night and in the movie, um, to me, basically created that jingly-jangly 60s pop sound and folk rock in America. Um including Roger McGuinn of the Birds, um, you know, Hey Mr. Mr. Tambourine Man cover, that really chimey classic sort of riff. Yeah. He's, he's noted as saying, he went to see the Beatles movie, saw that guitar, heard that sound, and had an epiphany and sold his, all his gear just to get one of those. <laughs> um, so the Birds' whole sound, that chimey, jangly thing, sort of Californian sound, was based upon him seeing the Beatles. And so that's what I would say when they say the Beatles are so fundamental to almost the creation of so many genres and sounds in music. Um, arguably then because of that, that Californian sound from bands like the Birds and stuff, that infiltrated into bands like the Beach Boys, who then would use 12-string Rickenbackers and so on. Um, and then they would bounce back and influence the Beatles in their mid-period and so on. But... Um, so, yeah, and that, again, from free guitar that was given to the Beatles. So, again, shrewd business work by Rickenbacker. <laughs> How common were 12-strings at that time? Were they seen as a novelty or were they um, 
what 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 was sort of their their um, place in the whole thing? Re- really good question. Um, yeah, completely seen as a novelty. I think electric twelve string was a non-entity before that, pretty much. Um, twelve strings were around. I guess most notably artists like sort of Lead Belly used them in acoustic bluesy type stuff. You know, perhaps late fifties, um, early sixties. But they were they were a folky acoustic guitar. Certainly no electric 12 strings. And then all of a sudden, come sort of 64-ish and you've got Hard Day's Night, every company then, guitar company, instantly tried to make electric 12 strings. Wow. You know, Fender, jump, Fender jumped on the bandwagon late, um, but arguably made the best 12 string, the Fender Electric 12, in about 65-ish, um, which is notable for its use by Jimmy Page on Stairway to Heaven, for example. Um, Stairway to Heaven. And other songs and loads of other artists use them you know everyone then was making 12 strings and for a couple of years you couldn't almost have a pop record without electric 12 string on um <laughs> you know again came from the beatles that sort of chimey sound you know um beatles then going forward again they didn't sort of stand still um paul and it's interesting in this one because although he kept on with his hofner bass pretty much all the way through he was very instrumental in trying to push musical boundaries in many ways. And he got friendly with John Mayle, the British blues artist, who's also known, and we'll perhaps come back to touching on this in a little while, um, known for bringing through loads of British blues rock talent, Eric Clapton, Peter Green, um, uh, amongst amongst many others, uh, Mick Taylor and so on played in the blues breakers with him but he apparently was chatting to paul and said oh you want to get one of these semi-acoustic guitars you know these sort of classic you know the gibson 335 type thing all the blues guys use paul went and found an epiphone casino which again is a symmetrically shaped guitar it's identical to a gibson 330 in that they're basically semi-hollow well they're fully hollow guitars with p90 pickups so they haven't got a center block so not as rocky not as sustainy but um he got a sort of 62 example and used it to play all of his lead guitar parts when he did stuff in the studio. So oh. the lead break in um, sort of Ticket to Ride is Paul playing that guitar. You know, the lead guitar on Taxman is Paul playing that guitar. Right. Um, he, But the, where this is kind of really influential to the Beatles sound is that John and George were obviously so taken with this guitar they went out and got matching ones and they 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 became and those were slightly later models there's like 64 65 models sunburst paul's was a few technical differences being a slightly earlier model um which paul converted his to left hand but they they theirs were right hand obviously um but yeah and they became those big sunburst guitars that you see them with in classic Beatlemania 65 ish the final world tour shea stadium the japanese tour you know it's that's those epiphone casinos and again that was thanks to paul um mm. that they got those which was, was so was epiphone its own company uh, a company in its own right at that stage it was and around about that time well probably actually by that stage it had been bought out by gibson it was around it was the early 60s uh, 62 63 ish i think from memory um, again, all these dates are roughly because yes. I'm not checking them all out yeah. exactly. So if people are questioning, by all means, go on Google and find out the exact, <laughs> exact date that Epiphone was bought out by Gibson and let us know. Um, <laughs> but uh, from a guitar sort of chronological perspective, then, yeah, Gibson then bought out Epiphone. And nowadays we know Epiphone as the budget brand of Gibson. Yes. You know, if you can't afford a proper Gibson, proper in inverted commas then you get an epiphone i mean epiphone have made fantastic guitars for years and continue to do so um but yeah it it wasn't a budget brand at the time so them having the epiphone casinos they were just as good as a gibson and arguably the early epiphone jazz guitars were better than gibson and that's why gibson bought them out Mm. um but that's a whole nother tale perhaps so i suppose Um, um john getting hold of one of these is the the start I don't know how to phrase this properly, but it's the the start of them almost de, uh, or sort of maturing away from the rock and roll um, clangy sound into a, um, almost I'm going to say a smoother sound, but like I imagine if you've got a three three five, you can play you can um 
manipulate that sound more because it's a it's a richer more honest tone in its own right um and then you know as opposed to rickenbacker which is yeah massively so got a very yeah so it's got that's got a really sort of signature sound that you're going to struggle to it's it's you know it's not a blank canvas to work from i think i think you're bang on and i think this is where it's so important to look at um the technical instruments that they had as an influence on their sound I think it's no coincidence that John getting this casino, which he obviously adored because he continued to use it throughout the rest of the Beatles' career into his early solo career. Um, you know, his first gigs with the uh, John Lennon, Yoko Ono, Plastic Ono band in Toronto and Canada. He's using that same epiphone. It's been stripped of its paint by then, which is a later story, but it's the same guitar. But I think for John in particular, he's going from this cramped Rickenbacker they like you say, made that one sort of technical term coming, plinky plonky sound, which is <laughs> completely to be unfair to Rick because it made a lovely, beautiful, chimey sound, you know? But it is That's that. That's better, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> but they are short and sustained, very staccato, very, very cutting and bright. Um, not a lot of grunt or push to get any sort of overdrive and so on. To the Epiphone Casino, which had these beautiful um, Gibson P90 pickups in it. Um, and far more sustain in the guitar, not as much as a fully solid, you know, guitar or a center block solid like a three three five, but still, you know, lovely. And you see John's playing develop. You know, he's playing more lead lines. He's playing more intricate chords, probably practically wise, because he's not just cramped on the neck of this yeah. short Rickenbacker. Um, and once he gets the casino, you you pretty much see the Rickenbacker cast aside and never to be heard of again. Um, which was huge for John because he'd used that Rickenbacker for sort of four or five years before that point, and then it was gone, you know, and the mm. casino sort of takes over as his main electric guitar. George had one and again used it for a lot, lot. Um, and Paul. And their style, as you say, developed more. The casinos are fantastic studio guitars. You know, live as music got louder and louder and amplifiers got bigger and bigger, um, hollow guitars like that can be tricky to handle and I think they sort of found that as well as they got to those stadium gigs but in a studio I mean to me the the absolute pinnacle of a casino tone is come together you know Abbey Road yeah. and you've got that warm neck pickup sound in the verses where John's playing a beautiful bluesy sort of real but there's lots of stain going on then they flick to the bridge pickup the same amp but the controls up to 10 and it's that raucous almost punky you know the bridge chorus part yeah. of it amazing you know um huge versatility and again lead lines they could play john playing his casino on the lead lines on get back um you know amazing sound amazing lead lines and stuff um sustain you know so yeah hugely influential the guitars um, on their style, I think, and it helped them as they were progressing as musicians to have these other instruments. As they were uh, buying um, or sort of coming across these instruments, was uh, were they being developed? So it says, uh, like Epiphone, I see here the the casino. Maybe um, I hope this is right. The casino that Paul got's nineteen sixty two. So are we? Yep. I'm thinking from from in comparison to where we are now. That we see, we tend to see a lot of the same guitars, just improved models of of these guitars, and we're kind of talking now about the birth of these models almost, and the yep. early, um, the early improvement of technology through those models. So that we're, you know, it feels quite casual talking about an Epiphone Casino now, but at that time it would have been a very new and, or well, potentially very new and very. Um, different and exciting thing to be to be working with um, rather yeah. than something that we're used to seeing oh, for the last 60 years completely i mean the biggest arguably the biggest year for um sort of revolution electric guitar design would be 1958 um so you know literally two or three years before the beatles got huge and you had um, in that era you by that point you would have had you know the telecaster was had been around for sort of five six years stratocaster had been around for three or four years you had the electric bass bigger amps but fundamentally in in 58 gibson hit this peak of form as well and in 1958 they brought out the flying v <laughs> which is amazing to think a guitar like that was designed at that point yeah um they bought out um the 335 which is 
similar in shape to a casino and a 330 but has a solid center block okay. so it's solid down the middle inside the guitar and and the more powerful humbucking pickups um which led to a lot of sort of yeah, use in blues lead guitar clapton at the albert hall and that sort of stuff um they brought out the explorer now and and the les paul the famous sunburst burst you know les paul kind of hit its peak um, in 1958, got a sunburst finish, and in 1958, 59, and 60, these models were made, and then discontinued, as was the Flying V and the Explorer, because it was too revolutionary for the world, and nobody bought them. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, yeah, going back to your point, that means that all this explosion in technology a couple of years before suddenly gave this huge palette of sounds to artists and put them under the fingers of artists, and what you get sort of hand in hand with this is that in the UK in 65, 66-ish, a young Eric Clapton stumbles across um, a Gibson Les Paul solid body, which by this point had been out of production for four years, five years, because nobody wanted them. Um, but he ha he was a big uh, Freddie Green, Freddie King fan, sorry. And one of the albums is Freddie King playing actually an earlier Goldtop Les Paul, but it's similar model. Um Clapton then goes on to buy one of these because he's a huge fan of the blues greats and then creates the tone on the uh, John Mayles Blues Breakers Beano album, which is Les Paul into a Marshall amp completely turned up to 10, basically, um, and creates rock lead guitar tone as we know it from then and ever since. I mean, if you, if you put on um, the Beano album, that guitar tone is every single rock lead guitar tone ever after, pretty much. <laughs> you know, I mean, Led, Led Zeppelin, you know, everything in the 70s, 80s, 90s, that's the sound. Um, and, and again, it comes from Clapton being a bit obtuse at the time in the studio. You know, engineers, one of the amps turned down quiet. I mean, the, you know, in reference to the Beatles, they're... Their Vox amps, apparently live, they used to turn them up and crank them, were a bit more raunchy sounding. And then they go into Abbey Road and the white-coated engineering staff were like, you can't have that amp that loud, sonny boy. You know, <laughs> turn it down to, it, it's cleaner and clearer and we don't want distortion on our signal. Um, and, and so those early Beatles albums, again, are cleaner and clearer because it wasn't the done thing to record distorted guitar. Mm. Um Hugely interestingly, there's a picture of John Lennon on the She Loves You sessions um, with a fuzz pedal. And it's the same Gibson Maestro fuzz pedal, which was pretty much the first ever made fuzz pedal, that eventually Keith Richards used a year or so later on Satisfaction. And everyone's like, oh, wow, Keith Richards pretty much created fuzz tone by using it on this number one hit. John Lennon tried to use it on She Loves You and was shouted down by George Martin and so on as, oh, no, 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 no. One, one can't be having that distorted sound on this <laughs> lovely song. You know, um, so How they were always... It could have been. <laughs> exactly. You know, they were always experimenting with stuff. Um, but so this guitar tone evolved through the 60s alongside the Beatles career and all the other popular music acts that were happening and the genres and, you know, British blues became big in about 66, 67, accompanied by bigger and bigger amps turned up louder and louder and being allowed to record these amps distorted. Mm -hmm. You know, following the Beano album, all of a sudden you have The Who and you have Led Zeppelin coming in later, later 60s recording with distorted amplifiers. Um, Helter Skelter by the Beatles on a White Album was in response to Paul, I think, hearing a Who track, which claimed to be the loudest, most distorted song ever <laughs> recorded. And he was like, right, we've got to do a louder, more distorted song. So, they, yeah, they turn the amps up um, and, you know, get a heavily distorted sound, which they hadn't really had before. I mean, they'd used, they had by that point used fuzz. Paul used fuzz bass on a track on... Um, on Rubber Soul, I think was one of the first ones with a fuzz bass on, and certainly Revolver, they got a bit more distorted sounds and stuff. But was um, the distortion at that point purely valve driven, or how? I mean, this is uh, speaking as somebody who doesn't know a lot about. I know that you you have um, 
modeler amps now, which is obviously completely sort of electrically, it's false, falsely generated. But what, um, so you've got obviously the AC30s will have had yeah. valves in and would could you could drive those valves. What what else was was helping that? Pretty much the the amps and that early sound of you know early distortion was just amps being turned up. One of the first records, Rocket eighty eight, an American single, and I forget who it's by. Um, but it's again have a have a Google of Rocket eighty eight. Uh, I think the guitar was possibly played on that by. Um, Ike Turner, but I'm I'm not hundred percent. But around about that same era, there was a couple of records made where a valve amp was broken, or probably actually what happened was one of the speakers blew, because one of the things in those early valve amps, the speakers couldn't handle it. If you turned them up to ten, speakers blew. That gave a distorted sound, and people liked it for the odd thing. But fundamentally, distortion wasn't a thing and was frowned upon. And if you tried to record with distortion, it was like that's an error. That's false turn it down until you get a clear signal um, and it's only until the artists took control in sort of the mid 60s and were allowed more freedom um, that they got to use more distortion a vox ac30 turned up to 10 can be lovely hugely saturated and distorted that's the sound of queen <laughs> you know that massive rock rock big sound bohemian rhapsody all the rest of it it's the same amp the beatles used but the Beatles' early sound is nice, chimey, clean, beautiful, strummy, longy. Turn that same amp up, up to 10. You've got Queen with a little booster that Brian May had a travel <laughs> booster. But fundamentally, it's the same thing. The distortion, yes, was created by valve amps. Um, apart from fuzz pedals, which make a different buzzy sound, mm -hmm. like we mentioned, that satisfaction tone or as Beatles used on a few things. But that's a sound apart. Ultimately, it's valves. And that's the sound that guitarists and producers have been chasing ever since and arguably which is why the guitar world is so retrogressive in its development arguably you're saying about you know at those times the instruments would have been exciting and new we haven't really moved forward from there yes we have all this digital technology now and modelers as you say and profiles and multi-effects and all this but everyone's still trying to get the sound of and going back to what we said about Clapton, you know, a Les Paul plugged into a, an early Marshall turned up to 10. You know, that's that's the sound. And arguably, you still really can't get that sound without using the real gear, um, which is, as a shameless plug is going to be one of one of my future businesses <laughs> where, where I'm, I'm hoping to uh, setting up this my studio now to I've got a bunch of these old vintage amps, basically. And I'm hoping that people can reamp, send me tracks and I can run them through these vintage amps and send people back the proper sound. <laughs> because once, as, as you know, with drums, a drum plugin is great. You know, a sample drum is great. Um, but give me a real drummer mic'd up properly with decent, you know, ribbon valve mics into valve preamps playing in a room, drummer like yourself playing the drums over a sample any day of the week and it's that same process with guitars which i'm hoping to get to, <laughs> i wholeheartedly agree <laughs> so that concludes uh the first part of this um two-parter on uh guitars um, i really hope you enjoyed that i, I found it really uh, interesting chatting to ed and it's um it's quite refreshing for me to talk about something other than drums so i i really enjoyed having that conversation um please do go and check out ed's stuff um I mean, I've got his Instagram up on my uh, browser here. And if you like guitar porn um, and some studio porn, <laughs> go and check out Ed's Instagram. Um, it's Ed underscore vintage underscore guitars and amps. Um, or if you go to um, some of my uh, to my Instagram at all you need is drums, I'll have tagged him in the um, the announcement of this podcast. Um, so, yeah, go and check it out. There's uh, loads of uh, beautiful pictures and he also has a youtube channel called tone twins tv um which is a specialist vintage guitar youtube channel so go and check that out as well um fantastic so um i will leave you and uh to get on um i will see you in a couple of weeks with the second half of that episode um we'll talk a bit more about um amplifiers and uh and sort of the the latter half um of the uh of the 60s i suppose um and uh and that's that i don't think i've got anything more to say um as i mentioned at the start uh, you can get in touch with me joe at all you need is drums.com 
Um, if you want me to do a run of mugs, then um, tell me. <laughs> I'll probably do one anyway, because I, like I said, I want a mug. Um, yeah, I don't think I've got anything else to say. Um, a huge thank you, as usual, goes to Joe Kane for the uh, incredible uh, intro and outro music he created for me, and my good friend David Henshaw for the beautiful artwork that he supplies. Um, have an absolutely fantastic fortnight, and I will see you in a couple of weeks. Goodbye! Goodbye!